It is the case that the primary way humans communicate is still with text. With the web and, and social media, the amount of data now out there is unbelievable. It just creates possibilities for, for every organisation you can think of. The way that a machine takes a human being like you and creates this representation of you, it's got tens of thousands of different factors it looks at because it sees that you tend to buy these things, you, you like these things on Facebook, you do this, you live there, and it records all that about you, and then it, it puts you in that space. And now this space isn't a space we can conceptualise, it's not three-dimensional space, it's, it's, it's probably several hundred dimensions at least. Because the clever thing is you can have algorithms that collapse from tens of thousands of dimensions down to a few hundred. But it puts you in space. We can say, well, that other person is near you, whereas that other person's a long way away. So supposing there's somebody very near you, or quite a lot of the people near you, I, I can observe that they vote Brexit. So you can transfer information that we know about one person to somebody near them. It's like the way that well, machines recommend books or music. There might be some musician you've never, ever heard of and you've never listened to any of their music. But because of all the other things you listen to, that make, puts you in this place and space. And other people in that place and space, quite a lot of them listen to this musician. So they'll suggest it to you. That's how a lot of AI is working, in that kind of inferential way, by making generalizations. So everything's about kind of getting a picture of you, positioning in, in some kind of so-called vector space. You're listening to Impacted. From the University of Sussex. A podcast series about research for real change. Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact their work is having in the world. My name's Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And my name's Will Hood. And the voice you've just been hearing is today's guest, Professor of Computer Science, David Weir. David is a co-founder of the text analysis group TAG, as well as a co-founder of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media. David uses machine learning to interpret natural language and, amongst other things, investigates the impact of social media and the effects that it has on society. He's also a partner in Chasm Consulting, which provides research and consulting services. So this episode has somewhat of a meta-narrative to it, in that whilst we are primarily interested in the impact that David's work is having in the world, he is interested in understanding the impact that online text is having on you. So, as far as your story, yeah. uh, how did you end up working in the field of semantics? You know, what is it about the power of words which first attracted you? That's a good question. When I was doing my PhD in 1983, I started off doing uh, a, in a research project that wasn't anything to do with language. But a f someone I got to know very well, who was also doing a PhD, was working with one of the professors there on a grammatical formalism called tree adjoining grammars that was absolutely to do with the the description of lack of linguistic structure. I liked the kind of activities that were involved. It was it was fairly mathematical and involved um, proving things mathematically with or to do with this formalism, this grammatical formalism. So I liked I liked the process and um, 
and I found I could do it. It was sort of new to me because my background was in psych- undergraduate background was in psychology. It wasn't something that was terribly sophisticated from a mathematical point of view, but it was what you might describe as low-hanging fruit because no one else had been looking at this. And we were able to make quite rapid progress on a number of problems because no one else was. It was it was our own area. It was a grammatical formalism that our supervisor, PhD supervisor, had come up with. So that's that's what made me do it. It was it was the the kind of activity. And I was very sort of proud of the fact that I didn't implement any code for my PhD. It was, it's quite sort of funny looking back on it, given how applied what I'm doing now is. So it couldn't have been more different, really, from what I'm doing now. But that that was my first exposure to the area of natural language processing, which is the one I'm in now. So this phrase, natural language, this this yeah. comes up a little bit, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, your teaching profile yeah. um, states that you... You teach courses in both natural language engineering and applied natural language processing. Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to offer a layman term? For what for, natural language processing? Yeah. Oh, so natural language is just a, a language like English, French, Chinese. It's a, it's a language that, that is used that's just arisen in society as opposed to a programming language or maybe a language like Esperante that people have tried to... Um, um, create artificially, so it's not. A, it's as opposed to an, an artificial language, of which there are many. I mean, the the language of mathematics is a is an artificial language. Um, so natural language is this much fuzzier idea. It's it's it, and it changes over time. Natural language processing is a is a field that's grown up uh, that is about the automatic processing of text. And I say text rather than language, and in particular, it's generally not some speech is not. That's a separate field. For some reason, they grew up separately. So there's people working on the analysis of speech and there's people working on the analysis of text. And that field is called, sometimes called computational linguistics, but is also known as um, natural language processing. The reason why the course, the module that I teach is called natural language engineering was a deliberate attempt to emphasize the the applied nature of the work. David has applied this discipline of natural language engineering to help better understand a number of different online behaviours and for a diverse collection of clients. These include the Metropolitan Police Force, interested in patterns of hate speech on social media, as well as regional retailers wanting to build a customised experience for the end users of local media publishers. What these different projects have in common is the employment of the TAG software package known as Method 52, which extracts information from large data sets, which is then used by third parties to intimate real-life meaning and relevance. So, I mean, this brings us fairly neatly on to talking about TAG, which I believe is an acronym for Text Analysis Group. Again, reading online about what TAG is, it's stated as um, that TAG has come from a long line of AI research at Sussex starting in the 1960s, um, with the stated remit of applying natural language processing to real-world problems. Bridging that gap between research and the real world, I mean, that has to be as analogous to the word of impact as you're likely to find, yes. right? I mean, that's, that's, that's true. So that, that is definitely the, one of the primary goals of what we wanted to do in the lab. And one of the things that was um, very noticeable as soon as we started this was the impact this had on the amount of interest I was getting from 
the students who were coming through our undergraduate program, the good ones, who were the kinds of people who might consider doing PhDs, I found that from uh, people never came to knock on my door and said, I'd like to do my PhD with you when I was doing the more theoretical work. But once we moved into doing this kind of work, we were, it, we had, it was almost embarrassing because such a large proportion of the students who were graduating at or near the top of our undergraduate programs were just so excited to come and join in with what we were doing. There's actually three organizations, just to be clear. There's the TAG Text Analysis Group, which is a kind of informal thing we just created. We didn't f apply. It's not got any formal status, but it's, it's about 15 of us. And um, we actually now have a sister group. So we're actually slightly bigger because we sort of put another group alongside us. So there's that. And then we've set up a consultancy, which is called Chasm Consulting. And the reason it's called Chasm Consulting is that spawned out of a collaboration with Demos, which is called the Center for the Analysis of Social Media. And that's a bit of an odd one, but it was initially, it was part of Demos, but we're kind of, co we co-run it. But it causes the media complete confusion. They just think it's Demos. In the tag lab, we like to say that there are kind of porous walls. So, for example, the other day, someone who was in our team came back with some people from the company they were, they've moved to work with, and we're talking about collaborating with them. So are they in our team or not? Well, sort of not, but they're still, that's, that's ideal from our point of view. If we're kind of, people are able to go out into jobs in, in, in the right areas and, and on occasion bring collaborative work back to us. I mean, the, the, so we have this consultancy business, Chasm Consulting, and that provides an opportunity for people in the lab to mix, do a mix of academic researchy work with pr work on projects. In fact, we're getting more funding now through the, quite a lot more funding actually coming through the consultancy than through the university work. So there's a really a lot of work there. And um, being able to do that mix, and they can earn a bit more there through doing that than they do through, say, doing their PhD. So it sounds like having a, a group of people who are ready to kind of take on these projects, yeah. um, having a mix of both the, the consultancy and then yeah. the work you're doing at the university, yeah. this whole mix together sort yes. of creates and a And you've good... got to have the right balance. I mean, as the, the co-director, Jeremy Ruffin, is often will write on the whiteboard in our room, um, he'll say it's a mixture of people. You've got to have people. You've got to have the technology and you've got to have the funding. And sometimes... Your problem is not having enough people. Sometimes it's not having enough technology. And you're constantly kind of worrying about which one you should be putting your worrying about most. And generally, it's the people, the biggest problem. It was imposed after those horrific attacks in Paris in November. So there must have been a feeling that the security services in France were on top of this. Uh, there were already four attacks of followers of Islamic State uh, in France. TAG's ability to analyze large amounts of digital text over multiple platforms is of particular interest for anyone wishing to observe patterns of communication across social media platforms at times of national crisis or civil unrest. In 2016, following the terrorist attacks in Nice, Method 52 was employed by TAG to identify an increased presence of hate speech. So, um... TAG has been used to analyze social media messages. Um, your research has revealed that anti-Islamic hate speech spikes after acts of terrorism. 
So um, I saw in, in some of the research I did that the day after the Nice attack on the 14th of July 2016, when a man drove through the crowds in the city killing 85 people, there was a huge spike in activity yeah. um, with 21,190 uh, derogatory or anti-Islamic yeah. tweets posted. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk um, about how the TAG uh, lab contributed to those findings yeah. and to the research. So we're working with the group. We're now also working with an, another um, group called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is another think tank that specializes in extremism. And they are the experts on sort of thinking about how to analyze the data and what is interesting about the data. Um, I mean, obviously, we any human being can have a view on that, but, th- but that's something that they specialize in. They, they read a lot about it. They think about it a lot. It's their bread and butter. But it's very hard for them to get the data. And in fact, this is true of a lot of researchers generally, which is that they are constrained by the functionality provided by the, the, the company that's delivering the data. So let's take Twitter. If somebody at the university wants to work with a Twitter data set, they can probably, if they've got the right people around, they can use the Twitter so-called API, which is a, a kind of programmable interface to that data. They can collect data. But it's extremely limited I'm, I'm, the reason I'm saying this is to sort of contextualize what, what we bring in. Because what, it, what it's constraining is if you say, I want to get some tweets, you have to identify tweets that have certain terms in them, certain words in them. And it will give you all the tweets with those words. So, for example, supposing you, you searched for the word bomb on Twitter because you're interested in potential terror attacks. We try it you get a huge number of hits, just a street, many a minute. And it's, oh, that song really bombed. Oh, he really, the word bomb is hugely ambiguous. And the odd, there will be the odd mention of a news report of a bomb attack, something going off in wherever. Um, but that word is very ambiguous. And that's generally true of lots of words. That's the sort of raw Twitter interface. They collect these data sets that are full of irrelevant stuff. It's just getting in the way, and it's a real problem. So if they wanted to collect hate, stuff that's hateful, in um, say anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim rather, um, they might choose some terms that people tend to use when they, muzzies or whatever. But some of those terms will also be used, well, they'll be used in a whole lot of different ways, sometimes quite innocuously, sometimes in a way that's completely different, off-topic. And you need to be able to disentangle all of that. And that's where the technology comes in. We've built up a technology base that allows the analysts at Demos and at ISD to to collect data sets and to take out the bits that aren't relevant, to take the rest of it and say, oh, that's all about this, that's about that, this is about that. This is not just about that, but it's really unpleasant stuff about that. And this is the stuff that's about that and not so unpleasant. And just to code up the data or break down the data and get a much clearer picture, on aggregate at least, as to how much of what is there. And that is, in a nutshell, what the technology we've been building over the last few years allows you to do. And it's, it's very general, in a sense, it's, it's, and, and has been applied for all sorts of different data sets, not just Twitter, but can be used fruitfully here. And so that's where... That's the technology that is we're bringing to the table. And is. So the technology that you're talking about, are we specifically talking 
mainly about method 52. Yes. Yeah. In terms of your example, so you're saying that they would they would, you know, provide a few example tweets. Is that is that identifying other keywords or is it the context yes. or so, what so, is it they're looking for? Yeah, so there's the analyst takes a sample and is looking for something useful to do with that data. And then they let's say they make a decision to split it into examples of where bombs are using to talk about a bomb attack and everything else. At that point, the machine says, okay, so those are two classes about bomb attacks, not about bomb attacks. And it just gives you 10 examples and, and you say, well, that one's about bombs, that one, bomb attacks, that one isn't, that one isn't, that one isn't, that one is. And this is okay. And then it gives you 10 more. And it uses something called active learning. So it gives you the ones that it thinks it's most unsure about. And it incrementally builds a model that's trying to make that distinction, giving you more data and more data that it's most unsure about. And you tell it the answers to those ones. And one of the characteristics of our situation is that's particularly challenging and is interestingly not one that, that the academic community has perhaps been so focused on. Is, is I can explain it with respect to, for example, the, re the reaction to a terror attack. In order to do our analysis on that, you isolate that particular period of, say, two days. And you do analysis of that. You build all these bits of machine learning that are of no value to any other data set. They're specifically for that reaction to that particular, and you throw them away when you finish. So you, you haven't got time to have people labelling up loads and loads of examples. You're going to work with a few hundred, whereas the deep learning methods are being built, uh, applied to problems where you've got typically thousands upon thousands of examples to teach the machine. Here we're dealing with far less. So our particular interest in, in combining what we want to do with deep learning is to find ways to, for it to exploit the advantage of deep learning, but with far fewer examples of labeled data. So that's a, that's a, a, a significant strand of activity in our lab at the moment. Look at that. So you've developed working collaborations with more than 20 organisations on a range of challenges. Could you maybe talk us through when you started with this approach? Um, yeah, so it's true we've worked with a lot of organisations. We tend to do a large number of smaller projects. So we're not getting £1 million grants. We're getting anything from 10000 to 150000 But But we're getting... I mean, some of them, actually, there are bigger ones, but the bulk of our projects are sort of zero to 100,000. But they'll be over three months or six months. And a lot of them have come through Demos. So the, the people we work with, the Demos, have been amazing at uh, reaching out. They spend a lot of time, hasn't come at no cost to them, spend a lot of time going to talk to the Cabinet Office, going to talk to the, health, the Department of Health, going to talk to some business here and another business there and we don't have a website we don't advertise ourselves we we haven't we don't we haven't gone out to get any business it's all come through people finding us but a lot of it's come through our connection with demos so if i had some advice well i don't know how possible it is for other people to to do something similar but that has been a huge benefit to us absolutely enormous so I just, I guess what I'm wondering about is whether you could talk about almost the typology of partnerships or the, you know, the different kinds of partners mm -hmm. you've worked with, because we've got Demos, which is obviously a think tank, yeah. 
Um, but then as part of your um, I guess your consultancy uh, group, you have maybe more corporate partners. I just wondered if you could talk just very briefly about okay. the types of partners and the challenges associated with that. Um, so government departments, so Department of Health, uh, the HMIC, the Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, and other organisations like that, so parts of the, and the Cabinet Office. We're just starting a project with them. And then there's some start-ups, some in, in Brighton, others in London that we've worked with. Um, we get funding from various charities. So, for example, the the uh, Open Society Foundation has funded some of our work and the Joseph Rowntree Foundation's funded some of our work and there are others that just don't happen to come into my head. So there's a bunch of organisations like that. Um, we've had funding from the Wellcome Trust to do things. We've worked with the King's Fund on one project. We've worked quite a lot with Ipsos Mori, well, a bit with Ipsos Mori. We're hoping to work more with them. We have a project at the moment, which is we're doing it jointly with them, to do with gambling, uh, underage gambling. We do work with the Department of Health and Social Care who send out questions to the public, to large numbers of people, saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? And they get back massive numbers of responses that they can't deal with. And we help them code up those responses so that they can more easily digest what's being said in answer to each of their questions. Now, does that have an impact? Hopefully. Um, it's hard to measure, but that that's an example. And we've worked with the Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary looking at what people are saying across the country about police, the police, um, duolocating those discussions to each of the regions within the country. Um, hopefully that has an impact on some of the reports that people there... I mean, they continue to fund us to do it, or both or such organisations. I would assume that means that it's having some impact. Um, we've worked um, with the Home Office looking at um, ISIS and other jihadists. It's pretty clear that that's had a pretty big impact on things going on in the Home Office. From all sorts of different reasons, people discover that, we, that we're here and we have a rough idea of what we can do and come and talk to us. So there's a very common uh, interaction that arises when you say you're working with a startup or some business that they have some textual data and they think there's something useful they can do with it. And they, they don't, but they don't have really any idea of what the actual capabilities of today's technology is. So they, you meet with them and they'll tell you what data they've got and maybe describe what they'd like to do with it. And it's often the case that it's not possible to deliver what they want because the technology can't do it. And then we start talking about the kinds of things we can do and then they adjust and then we'll typically do a pilot project to... to demonstrate more fully that we can do it for a small amount of money and if that works out then we continue the collaboration that's the kind of generic way it works that's and would the, you would you say any of those those groups have you know are there particular challenges or or positive aspects you've talked well, about demos and one of the challenges that often comes is how short the time scale is so talk if addressing kind of concerns that other academics might have that arise in our work. But it's not unusual to get funding and they want us to start straight away and they want the results written up in three months' time. So what you need in order to do that is you need a team in place that's very flexible in terms of what, they can, what they're going to spend their next three weeks doing. 
one minute I've said, okay, we need to, you need to be we need to deliver on this, this, and this, and this. So you're going to do this much of that and that much of that over the, and then something comes up and we're saying, well, you know, I said you were going to be doing that. We're going to have to delay that and do something. And in fact, it's not all rosy because I think one of the downsides of operating like this is that we are spinning so many plates that the progress that any one project has can be it's verging sometimes on being too slow and and also there's so much context switching going on among people in the group that they that I'm not sure it's as efficient either so there there are challenges we could do with more people but of course that requires more funding and one of the problems we have is that the normal traditional funding model here is that you get your funding up front all guaranteed absolutely rubber stamped the government's promised to give it and then you can hire i mean and you can't even advertise till you've got that that, that that kind of model just doesn't work at all. We need to be able to... So we've we've got a very sympathetic uh, team at the head, heading up our school, and we've got arrangements now where we have been able to build up capacity, mostly through PhD students. So rather than taking on postdocs who are really quite ex- comparatively expensive, what we've done is to take on PhD students who, in return for taking them on as PhD students, they do, they do work on projects. And... Um, so they become part of our workforce, but they're doing a PhD alongside it. And often that works out very well because the, the project work they're doing ends up being the basis for their PhD because there's such a tight link between the sort of academically interesting challenges that arise and the data sets and the, and the, the particular scenarios that arise in these practical applications. So to what extent do you think academics working in your field have a responsibility to to have an impact outside of academia? The field, the academic field of natural language processing, it, it historically, a lot of people in the field haven't really engaged with real-world problems. They've had a set of a couple of dozen tasks that, you, that we're kind of aware of. We have our data sets that we all share, and we just plug away at those same data sets and those same tasks, most of us, rather than going to an organisation that wants a solution to something. And one of the consequences of the way academics operate is that they will, their goal is to write papers that they think will be enough to convince a, a reviewer that they've discovered something interesting. They put that to one side and they move on to the next thing so they can get another paper. And they often they don't want to just keep incrementally improving the thing that they've just done. That's not seen as being so innovative and creative by the field, so they keep jumping around, leaving these these things that are sort of finished from the point of view of a publication, but not something that are that are actually usable in the real world. Because often the, the problems that arise in applying something in the real world are, are seriously difficult to deal with, and there's a lot of more work to be done to make it usable, but maybe they're not quite so theoretically interesting. Would you say then that the drivers, driving researchers, that this focus on, on the research and the publication could have an impact on their ability to stick to one area in order to, to do sort of more long-term work that might achieve impact? Well, I mean, I think you just have to look at um, certain departments in the science side here that are doing fantastic research, getting fantastic papers and are struggling with their impact case studies in the REF. 
There is a sense in which people are jumping from one thing to another, but I do think people have a long-term plan and they're working. So they, they, they're working towards long-term plans. There's some big problem and they're, they're making incremental steps. Obviously, some people are working on long-term problems that it's not about having an impact now, it's possibly an impact in decades' time. And then, then maybe there isn't an opportunity and any particular good reasons for them to be trying to hook up with people who could help them get impact. But in some other areas, I mean, medicine's obviously an example. Everyone is trying to have impact in the, in the short and medium term. And there I think there probably is a bit of a, a lack of alignment between the, the publish, publish, publish thing, which is ba the basis of promotions, and the, the desirability of having impact. Because the time you spend doing that, if it's not going to produce this sort of quite such high-quality papers, if any papers at all, is time you could spend. It's an it's a opportunity cost. I mean, I think big data is going to be a hugely significant thing going forward and um, that society needs to address the problem of getting skills, sort of big data capability into the society so people getting trained up so they, they can understand how to work with big data. And it is, yeah, it's going to be absolutely huge. It's incredible how quickly things have changed. And it's, it's the amount of data that is, can be seen by a computer. It's just, it's just crazy how much more there is. And the ability to automatically process that and look for patterns and do useful good things is phenomenal. But it's also possible to do, as we're seeing with all this interference in elections and so on, there are some really bad things that can happen. And it's, it's really important that people try to get an understanding of how, how that is being done how their data is being used. How is it that somebody can can target you with adverts because they know that you're susceptible to change being someone who might actually be rather more likely than the average person to vote for Brexit? But, although you're probably someone who isn't going to now, but maybe you're... How could they infer that about you when you haven't told them that? That's the kind of thing that I think people need to understand. That's hugely important. So there's, there's really good things. I do think it's very, very big. Think, and I think AI is going to have a big impact in lots of ways. But I don't think it has to be bad, all bad. I mean, there will be some bad stuff going on. But it, it, hopefully it can be mostly really good because we'll understand things better. Wonderful. That was great. Okay. Fascinating. Was really, really interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. I don't know what you're going to do with that. <laughs> but, but do get some of those ideas. So can we use your algorithm? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need you. Yeah, you I'll transcribe it and then yeah. it can tell you. No, it <laughs>